show us your son, Jesus. Uh, we want to see him. It's him we're concerned about. It's him that is our passion. And it's him uh, that we want to experience and hear from now. Give us Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we want Jesus, but who is he? I want to ask that question. Who is Jesus? Why is he so important? Is he important? As, um, as um, our friend uh, Lee said earlier, I forgot his name there for a moment, we've been covering this on, on the Bible study on Thursday, Christianity Explored, and we want to ask now this morning, who is Jesus? What does he bring? What does he do for us? Have you ever noticed that churches speak a lot about Jesus? Why? Why is he so significant? And I want to look at that with you. And I want to suggest, friends, that when we look at Jesus, that we see someone who changes all the rules. Someone who brings about a completely new understanding of God and a new way of relating to him. In modern terminology, Jesus reconfigures everything. He reconfigures everything. And I want to show you now. We're in Mark 2. I'm trying to break up the, pas the, the passage uh, in three points this morning. So don't worry. That doesn't mean we'll have three half an hour points. No, we'll take half an hour to do three points. Okay? I promise you. Okay, firstly, Jesus makes possible our worship of God. Jesus makes possible our worship of God. Verses 1 to 12. Let me ask this question. If you're on Christianity Explored, you're not allowed to answer. What is humanity's greatest problem? What is humanity's greatest problem? Some have a guess. It's a three-letter word. It is. But you are on Christianity Explored. Okay? It is sin. And the Bible is absolutely clear about that. Here's what Romans says. This is a book in the Bible, Romans. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men. Can you see the significance of sin in our world? What is humanity's greatest problem? The single greatest problem is sin. Anything and everything that falls short of God's standard. It's responsible for the breakdown of our bodies. Hey, you know, it's not natural that our it's not natural that I have to wear glasses to see properly. That, that's not normal. Sin is breaking down and destroying us and our world, everything we could possibly imagine. So here's the thing. So sin is our greatest problem, but the greatest and most devastating effect of sin is not even our own the breakdown of our bodies. Look, you know, we are getting old. Yeah, you're thinking, speak for yourself, Montez. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we are, aren't we, uh, as, 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 as beings. But that's not the greatest effect of sin. Someone tell me, what is the single greatest effect of sin? It's most devastating aspect. Death, it is death. And death related to, so what does death do for us? Separation from God. Are you reading my notes? 
Okay, I'll believe you. It is, it is exactly that. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your sins or your iniquities have done what? Someone tell me. It's on the screen. I think it's on the screen. It is. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Humanity's greatest problem is that we are alienated from our maker. You know, people often ask me or say to me, well, I don't believe in God because he never answered my prayer when my granddad was ill. And, I, and my response to that in a gentle way is say, hey, you're alienated from your maker. He's not listening to your prayers. Humanity's greatest problem is that we're alienated from our maker. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus, I want to suggest, or the scripture suggests, changes that fundamental reality of human existence that God is aloof, out there, distant. What's the theological term for that? It begins with T. He's trans, transcendent. Okay, He's up and above and beyond us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' prayer begins like this? Our Father who art in heaven. He's out there. Sin has, has made that distance a, rea- uh, distance a reality. And what Jesus does for us, he connects us to God. Watch this. So this is where Mark chapter 2 comes in. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, so many gathered there, that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Let me just stop there. I want to stutter there just one, just quickly. Jesus' primary message. Somebody tell me, what was Jesus' primary work on earth before the cross? What was it? He did miracles, but that almost always led to his primary intention of his mission on earth. What was it? To preach the kingdom of God. You just read the Gospels and tell me, yes, he performed miracles, yes, but his primary mission, what the miracles always led to, he taught, he taught, he taught. If you want an identity for Rivergate Christian community, it's this. It's focus is to teach, to teach, to teach God's word. It must always be the focus of church. Whatever else church may include, it may include wonderful music group and great testimonies and great hosts, although they're old. Uh, Whatever it may include, it must include teaching the Bible as its primary focus. Everywhere Jesus went, he preached the word to them. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them since they could not get him to Jesus uh, because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus and low, digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Can you imagine this scenario? It's absolutely bizarre. So they want to see Jesus. That's not bizarre. It's understandable. He's, he's got a reputation for being able to do the spectacular and so they bring him to Jesus. They can't get him to Jesus. Now, I think I would have just waited outside, wouldn't you? Bam. Surely you would just wait outside, wouldn't you? With these guys. And it shows the urgency. This man needs urgent attention. They, they, they separate a roof that's got tiles and beams and dirt and, and thatch. They, they tear it open. 
I wonder, who, I wonder who, who repaired that afterwards. Okay, they lower him. You can imagine the commotion. They bring him to Jesus. This man's emergency is, what is his emergency? He needs, yeah, he needs healing. Now, now, now Chris said out loud, I just heard him, this man needs preaching. He knows that, I know that, you know that. In fact, the only person who can't see the urgency of this man's need is Jesus. Seriously, the only character in this scene that can't presumably see the seriousness of this man's need is Jesus. Because listen to him. Just, just listen to him. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, you're healed, stand up, walk home. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And he didn't say that, did he? What did he say to the man? Your sins are forgiven. What's going on there? Okay, let me say, Jesus does heal the man. Verse 12. Have the next verse, please. Look, he does heal the man. He got up from his mat and he walked. But in, look, they've lowered him through the roof because this is an emergency. He needs urgent attention. He can't be forgotten. But Jesus is more concerned about this man's sin. Why? Why? He's separated from God. And that separation from God is more of a pressing need than even his healing. The point is quite simple that Jesus is making to this man. And perhaps, look, I don't know why we're here this morning. No doubt, look, we've come and you know, we want to meet friends and, and we want to sing and we want to hear the Bible preached. I, I trust. But have we come primarily to connect with God? This man's pressing need was that he was alienated from God. He was sinful. And Jesus is dealing with that as a primary concern. And I think it tells us this, friends, is that when we come to Jesus, our biggest need may not be that we need healing. We may need that. It may not be uh, that, that there's a problem in our family or there's a job situation that's affecting us financially. That may be all real and genuine needs. Our greatest and biggest need is to connect with God. And Jesus deals with that which that affects our relationship with God. It deals with our sin. Bible preaching that never mentions or challenges sin is not preaching the gospel seriously friends bible preaching that does not emphasize the gravity of sin and its remedy is short of the gospel jesus makes possible our worship of god now let me just explain just quickly because i want to move on to the next point why jesus is dealing it with this man's sin. Not just why he's dealing with this man's sin, but why he does it in this fashion. Do you notice he forgives him his sin and then he heals him? It, it, look, it may be, we, we may imagine that perhaps this man's illness is related to his sin. And we can't be sure of that and we don't want to jump to those conclusions. But simply this, let me ask you this question. Jesus can forgive sins because of what we know about him, but we know all of this, all of this because we've read the New Testament, we've lived in the Christian life. How would these people, how could these people possibly know that Jesus really possesses the power to forgive sins? Because, look, words are cheap, aren't they? We know that. You know, we can claim also, I could claim I was an astronaut. 
previously to coming here. I did that once in a sermon, and half the church believed me. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I told them later it was only half truth. Well, it wasn't even half truth. There was no truth whatsoever to it. Hey, how can Jesus demonstrate without doubt that he really can forgive sins? Yeah, by doing something incredible that they can quantify and measure. You know, think about science. Science is science because it can rigorously, rigorous, rigorously test things over and over again. Jesus demonstrates that he has the genuine power to forgive sins, something which you can't quantify, something which you can't measure, something which you can't put up on a screen. He proves he has the power to do that by healing this man. Why do I say that? How does healing this man prove without a shadow of doubt he really can forgive sins? Someone tell me. How does, it's a tough question, so don't worry. How does healing this man Prove without a shadow of doubt that Jesus really possesses the power to forgive sins. Morag's point is great. Thank you, Morag. Look, if Jesus, okay, how does Jesus heal this man? Does he throw his hands on him, shake him? Does he put him on his feet? How, what medium does Jesus use? for healing this man speaks he simply says get up what is Jesus saying about the authority and the power of his speech it's dependable it's from God it's dependable it's always successful look he goes look watch this get up and walk what does a man do get up and walk Jesus is saying I want you to know that whatever I say is absolute it's done. And therefore, if I say your sins are forgiven you, what does that tell you, having witnessed what my words can do? It tells you I can forgive sins. And so that's what's going on here. Jesus is both forgiving sin, which is the most pressing need of this man, and he's proving beyond doubt he has the power to forgive sins because he speaks healing to this man and he speaks forgiveness to this man. Jesus makes possible our worship of God here's what I want to leave you let me ask you this question because every sermon sermons ought to get here as often as possible I want to get there now how does he make forgiveness possible how does he make forgiving our sins possible what does he do for us he dies on the cross I want us to remember that that when Jesus forgave this paralytic his sin Words weren't cheap. Do you realize that? Because that forgiveness, Jesus knew, would nail him to a cross. Doesn't that have some bearing on our approach to sin? If we understood that our sins nail Jesus to the cross. And retrospectively there, would we be more reluctant when we entertained it in our hearts and lives? Colossians says, listen to this, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. Except it wasn't an it. It was a him. 
our Saviour. And so I want to challenge you on this first point with this. Are we connected to Jesus? Is our sin dealt with? Have we confessed it before God? We were told in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Friends, are we truly connected to Jesus? I guess I'm asking, do we keep short accounts with Jesus? Here's, here's one. When was the last time we said to Jesus, I'm sorry? Jesus makes possible our worship of God. Secondly, Jesus redefines our understanding of God. Jesus redefines our understanding of God, 18 to 22. Let me ask you this. Who is God? Who is God? Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The quintessential answer to who is God is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus himself said these words in John chapter 14. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father God. How then can you say, show us? You see, when we ask the question, who is God? The answer always is Jesus. He is the physical, visible presentation of that being we refer to as God. And that's what Mark 2 is alluding to. So let me show you. It does it in code, but it's there. So verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Someone asked me about fasting this week. Please forgive me for not replying to you. Um, it just slipped my mind. Uh, but here it is. Look, the passage deals with this. Jo- now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? It's a legitimate question. Why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? You see, uh, the, the Pharisees made it the rule. There was a command in the Old Testament that on the Day of Atonement, the congregation was to fast, the proper 24-hour full-out fast. But the Pharisees, because of their pi- piety, began to fast more regularly. They made it one of the three pillars of Judaism. Does anyone know what the three pillars of Judaism are? Prayer, giving, and fasting. And so every Monday, every Thursday, Pharisees would fast. They would would do it as an act of piety, although Jesus rebuked them for how they did it. Here they are, and they want to know, if Jesus is such a pious leader, why isn't he encouraging his disciples to similarly fast? And I want you to see how Jesus responds to them. It's incredible. It's revelatory. It reveals something of God to us. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Let me repeat that. It's just absolutely revelatory what he's saying here. Jesus answers by saying, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Notice, he's not rubbish in fasting. And let me, let me encourage you in answer to that question. Fasting is a Christian discipline, and I would, 
And I want to, we'll preach on it sometime, encourage you to do it, to fast and to pray. But Jesus says that beyond his departure, his disciples, as you and me, as well as, as, well as those 11, will do it. Listen to verse 20. The time will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. On that day, they will fast. Can I encourage you? Fasting and praying is a Christian discipline. But listen to the revelation that Jesus is showing of himself. I'll read it one more time and just see if you can work out what he's saying here. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? That is pregnant. It tantamounts to blasphemy. Why do I say that? Jesus' statement there tantamounts to blasphemy. Why do I say that? Here, listen. Jesus is suggesting that his presence with the disciples removes the need for fasting. Can you see that? How can the bridegroom fast whilst I'm with them? Jesus is suggesting that his presence with the disciples removes the need for fasting. Why? What's the inference? He's saying, I'm God. Can you see that? Uh, his presence with the disciples removes the need for them to fast because fastings were to who? To God. And now that Jesus is standing here, he is saying there's no more need to fast. That must mean he is who? God. Can you see that? It's absolutely revelatory. Jesus is suggesting that he is one in identity. Equal to the manifestation of the deity to whom men and women fast. And thus with his presence, all need to fast to God is put on hold. This boy, when he returns to heaven, what will they begin doing? Fasting again because he's no longer with them. Jesus' presence with his disciples is a manifestation of God. And let me, there's one further thing here which, which really points it home even sharp, more sharply. Throughout the Old Testament, let me ask you this question. Throughout the Old Testament, who, what character is portrayed as being, being the bridegroom or the husband of God's people? What character throughout the Old Testament is always suggested as being the bridegroom or the husband of the nation of Israel? God. The father, actually, the father. So Isaiah 54, who is Israel's husband? Is it on the screen? Isaiah 54, your maker. It is Jesus, Pam, but in their understanding, they only knew him as a father. Your maker is your husband. For Jesus to assume now in the presence of Jewish people the role of husband to them means that he is their maker. And yes, Pam, you read into it. Therefore, that was Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is the bridegroom of the people of God. And the point is simply this, that Jesus is redefining our understanding of God, everything that we've ever known about God. That's what he's saying to them. I want you to know, Jewish people, that everything you've ever known about God is being redefined with me being in your presence. 
when you look at me, when you speak with me, when I'm in your presence, I am the God that you have known through your history as almighty Jehovah or Yahweh, closer to perhaps to the original term that the Jews would have known him by. Jesus redefines our understanding of God. So when we ask, who is God? Jesus is the answer. When we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. When we want to relate to God, we relate to Jesus. When we want the favor of God, we seek the favor of Jesus. Colossians 2 tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so therefore, worship him. Worship him as God. Worship him as your creator. Believe, him, believe in him. And have Jesus to be God in your walk with the divine. Jesus redefines that understanding of God. One further point and then we conclude. Jesus, not Judaism, is now the sole vehicle for relating to God. Jesus, not Judaism, is now the sole vehicle for relating to God. Verses 21 to 22. Judaism has its roots in the patriarchs and the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham. He, his life can be traced, sorry, rather Judaism can be traced all the way back to Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, I'll make you into a great nation. That great nation became Israel. It will ultimately be the church, finally. But at this juncture, it's Israel. And the point is simply this, that the nation of Israel and Judaism are one of the same thing. And it was through Judaism that the revelation of God came. I want you to understand this. This is the point of Romans in the importance of Judaism, in the importance of the Old Testament, and that is that it was through Judaism that the revelation of God came to men. The law came to men. The sacrificial system came to men. The temple came to men. The prophets came to men. Jerusalem received its significance. Judaism is the vehicle through which, up until that juncture, everything we could possibly know about God came. Theirs was the law, the scriptures, says Paul in Romans. So we have to understand the significance of Judaism to our understanding of God Everything that we knew of God prior to Jesus came through Judaism. But, 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 now that Jesus has come, Judaism is no longer that vehicle. And that's what Jesus is saying in Mark. Let me show you, 21 and 22. Again, it's cryptic. But I want you to listen to it and, and think through this as we read it together. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Now, no, he pours new wine into new wineskins. 
is this Jesus going off on a tangent because he fancies a drink? Or a new shirt? What's going on here? It's bizarre. Cryptic. And Jesus all, not always, mostly spoke, spoke in, 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 in encryption. What is behind this, in this cryptic language? Someone have a think. Yes, the old what? Yes, that is his point. That is the point. That is precisely the point. Let me show you in detail. So in case if you, if, if you didn't hear, uh, Jerry said his point is that the old system of Judaism and its law and the whole Old Testament covenant is done away with on his arrival. And he uses these pictures of everyday Jewish life to get his point across. So the first one, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. He, what, if he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. I mean, and we've got Gloria here who does a lot of sewing. I'm sure you can identify with this, Gloria. If, if, you've, got, if you've got a garment, and not that I know this, okay? I'm just picking this up from things uh, 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 that, that I've read. Okay, when you've got a garment, if you sew a new patch onto it and then you wash it, and that garment is already old, it will tear because the new patch will do what? Shrink because the old is already shrunk and it's already taken its shape. I know that. I had a brand new t-shirt. It was very expensive. We washed it, right? And the next day, it looked like it belonged to Theo. <laughs> right? Seriously. And so you have to first shrink the patch and then put it in. Otherwise, what does it do to that garment? It destroys it. You can't add something new to something old. Okay, that's the first point. You can't add something new to something old. And the second point is similar. Verse 22, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If it does, the wineskin will burst and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. This is much more fundamental. If you put new wine, which is still fermenting and still has its power, if you like, of its fermenting power, into wineskins that are brand new, that, are, that haven't been hardened or, or tempered, if you can use an engineering term in, in winery, uh, who knows, okay? It will destroy the whole thing. You lose all your wine, and so the point is much more disastrous, is that you lose everything. If you try and put new wine into old wineskins, you don't have a better or improved situation. You have absolute catastrophe. Can you see Jesus' point? You lose everything. If you try and do that, you lose everything. And so Jesus' point, can you see? It's quite simple. That if we try and add Jesus' teachings about God and how we relate to him to Judaism, you will destroy the garment. You don't, you're not better off, you're worse off. And even more significantly, Jesus says, if you try to add me and what I'm teaching you, if you just try to add it to Judaism, you destroy everything. There is no longer relationship with God there's no longer peace there's no longer a, a, a walking and a transformation with God everything is lost 
You see, yes, through Judaism, we had the revelation of God, uh, the law, the sacrificial system, the temple, the prophets, and the importance of Jerusalem. But it's important to understand as Christians and to understand it through the, vehicle, through the teaching of Jesus that the significance and purpose of the old covenant law has found its purpose in Jesus and is no longer valid as a vehicle by which we relate to God. And if we try and do so, it's, dis- it's disastrous. And that means, and you will never hear me preach so long as I'm your pastor, so long as you put up with me, the Decalogue. What's the Decalogue? The Ten Commandments. Why won't you hear me preaching the Ten Commandments? Because it's the old covenant. What did Jesus do with the Decalogue? See, Matthew 5, what did he do with the Decalogue? He fulfilled it and redefined it. You see, you see look, let me ask you this question. Now, this is, this is what the issue is. Do I really need to preach to Jerry, do not murder? I mean, what is the likelihood that Jerry is right now sitting here planning to murder somebody? I mean, maybe if he's Montez, it's possible. But, but, but beyond me, I mean, what is the likelihood that I need to preach to Jerry, do not murder? Do I really need to preach that to Jerry? You see, it's insignificant. And so what does Jesus preach instead? Yeah. And do not be angry. You see, and so here's the point. Judaism, including the Decalogue, including the commandments, every jot and tittle, said Jesus, has been fulfilled. It's come to its climax. And we now base our lives on Jesus. And on how he interprets law. And how he teaches law. And what he does with it. We ride the wagon with Jesus. Not Moses. And so Hebrews 8 tells us, whoever wrote Hebrews, we're not quite sure who wrote Hebrews, possibly Paul, it doesn't seem his style, but whoever wrote Hebrews says this, by calling this covenant new, the New Testament, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete will soon disappear, and the rationale, and we had it from over here, and the rationale for that, and I think Jerry said it too, Matthew 5 verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, and it's important to understand, Jesus did not abolish Judaism. Because what is the thing about God's word? It, 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 it's eternal. Jesus did not come to abolish Judaism because he's based on God's word, because you cannot abolish God's word, and so instead of abolishing it, what did he do? He fulfilled it. He completed it. If you complete something, if, if my friend here gives me a task to do and I complete that task, what happens then? It's game over. I find it with the kids all the time. They got these little gadgets and we download a game from them and in no time at all, Theo completes it. And when he completes that game, what does he want to do? Keep playing it? It's game over. When Jesus fulfilled the law, it was game over. And so he, he didn't come to abolish them because they're God's word. He came to complete them, fulfill them, and introduce to us a vehicle, a new vehicle, a much better vehicle, the perfect vehicle for knowing and relating to God. And that vehicle is himself. You know when he said in John, destroy this temple, John chapter 2, and I will raise it in three days, and they realized he was talking about his body? What was he saying? 
What did the temple do? What was the ultimate purpose of the temple? It facilitated what? Worship of God. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, what is he saying about his body? What vehicle is he? Is the vehicle for us to? Worship God. He is saying, you no longer need a temple to find God, to worship God, to offer sacrifices. You now find and relate to and meet God I am the ultimate vehicle for connecting to and relating to God. Jesus, not Judaism, is now the vehicle for relating to God. I'm going to give you one illustration. It's lovely, and I'm going to, com- I'm going to conclude with this. I mentioned Selwyn Hughes last week. This is from his sermon. He mentions his, his uh, grandmother and her death, and she's lying on a deathbed. And, and she's going through all her favorite verses in the Bible. Just quoting all the things she's memorized, just as I asked us to do earlier. And she's lying there. And then Selwyn says, as she neared the end of her life, she began to forget the verses of the Bible that she remembered. And she only memorized, and she only remembered her favorite verse, Philippians 2. For I know in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him, on, on, against, to him on, against that day. Let me say it properly. It will help if I spoke a bit slower. <laughs> hey. Right, okay. And so he says, and as time went on, as she neared her final moments, she'd forgotten even her favorite verse. But she remembered one word from that verse. And she kept repeating that one word over and over and over again Him. 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 H I M. Him. And Selwyn comments, she had lost the whole of the Bible, but that one word. But in that one word, she had the whole of the Bible. Because it's all about him. All the Old Testament truths converge on him. All the New New Testament truths emerge from him. He's the center of the gravity of the scriptures. It's all, all about Jesus. And if you remember or learn nothing else from the years of my ministry and the years of Nick's ministry, but learn only this, that it's all about him, you have qualified pass the test and have the assurance of salvation. Him. 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 Jesus. Jesus, not Judaism, is now the vehicle for relating to God. Hallelujah. I want to take my seat. I wonder if the musicians would just, would you play for us, Naomi, just for a few moments? Why don't we just, just reflect on the, the gravity of what we've heard? And in a couple of minutes, the musicians will lead us in a final song. Thank you.